Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Welcome back, everybody. This is T. Cole Newton coming to you, as always, pre-recorded from my patio at the 12-mile limit here in Mid-City, my friendly neighborhood bar. With me, as always, is my inimitable co-host, Mr. Steve Yamada. I want to say, hey, Steve. Hello, Radio Land. How's it going? Podcast, Internet Land? I don't even know at this point. I'd always like to think that I'm on old-fashioned radio, and that's, that's probably where I'd like to be living at for the most part. Also, two weeks in a row, inimitable. I'm pretty happy about yeah, that, Yeah, I decided to lean into describing you as inimitable. Nice. I think it's, that's you, it. You, it's you like my wordage, and now it's just a thing I say now. In one article uh, that somebody wrote, it was for Vice, uh, it, we, I was talking about how much I love crappy bourbon street drinks. Um, like, just I think they're fun. And I, like I was shark attacks are your favorite, exactly right shark now. attacks. Uh, a, a tropical isle hand grenade, a Pato's hurricane. Like I, I love those drinks. I think that they've really tapped into something that us as craft cocktail bartenders never will actually be able to tap into. You know, Fun. A consistent revenue stream. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I got referred to as the Shadow King of New Orleans in that in that uh, article. And I was just like, that is the coolest thing. Oh, that's such coolest, an X-Men villain status. Untrue. Coolest <laughs> untrue status I've ever had. But if anybody wants to call me the Shadow King, I would really appreciate that. All right. With me, as always, is the Shadow King of New Orleans, Mr. Steve Yamada. If this was a video cast, uh, you see my finger guns right now. Because oh, I got guns. some finger guns. All right. Also with us to talk about the New Orleans improv scene, the New Orleans filmmaking scene. Uh, his uh, life story, I guess, if he wants to delve into the <laughs> the depths of um, <laughs> the intimate portrait, uh, Mr. Brock Laborde. Uh, why don't you go say, hey, uh, hey, Brock. Hey, Cole and Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Yeah. So, Brock, uh, why don't you run down a brief list of your jobs currently? Oh, my God. Just, really? uh, just keep it to the first half dozen or so. Well, um, so I am one of the co-owners of the New Movement Theater in Austin and New Orleans, um, producing Hell Yes Fest in the next week. Um, I'm also a writer, director, producer person. Um, I, I also am a personal assistant to someone, uh, to another filmmaker. Um, I also, uh, am just kind of like a generic businessman looking to always I'll take any meeting and do any opportunity and, and like listen to anybody and start any kind of weird venture. Ah, your classic quintuple threat, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Actor, writer, producer, director, personal assistant, and we'll do anything for money. But first and foremost, just a humble, normal man. Define normal in this context i don't do normal men have five jobs i i define normal as i don't like yeah sure i have an unconventional like career path but i don't require the glitz and glamour and fame and fortune and all that kind of stuff that's my definition of normal okay i i do i'm totally in the podcasting (laughs) game for the glitz and glamour yeah um but yeah let's uh let's okay We, we we usually like to get a bit of personal history Mm -hmm. for our guests sort of track 
what draws people to New Orleans, why, why people land here specifically. So you're from a, a nowhere suburb outside of Houston with no life or culture to speak of. Is yes. that accurate? It's called Dayton, Texas. And it was just a little cowpoke town with like 4,000 people in it. And um, not many of my fellow high school graduates like really went on to college or did much else besides just kind of be farmers and start having just kids right out of high their school. Own cows. Yeah. Um, and all I knew was that I didn't want to do that. I didn't really know where I wanted to be or what I wanted to do, but I just didn't want to be there. Right doing Fair, that. Yeah. I'm sure that's something a lot of people have. I feel dealt like with. Uh, a lot of people who end up in New Orleans, they they grow up and they come from. This is for me. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's the same way for you, Cole, but they kind of feel when they're growing up or where they're at, it's not where they really belong. And I really felt the first time I came to New Orleans, it's like it was like oh, this place is weird. Like me, it's perfect. You know? <laughs> was that uh, is that kind of your experience as well? Like growing up, you're like you know I gotta gotta get out of here, find something else. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my family is from Louisiana, so I grew up coming to Baton Rouge a lot to visit people and going to LSU, um, and then that's where I wound up going to college. Mm. And then when I, you know, I'd pop over to New Orleans for Mardi Gras or whatever, and those were back in, I mean, back then I was intimidated. It was it was a big city, and there was so much going on. Like, if you just <laughs> come to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, you really don't get a good understanding of what the city's about. Right. <laughs> I mean, the population of the city triples during Mardi Gras, so. <laughs> and everyone's losing their mind. Yeah. At, like, for many uh, weeks in a row. And so, um, yeah, but but I, I feel very similar to you. Once I did come here and start, like, living and working here, it, it very quickly was like, hey, this little scrappy strange city this is for me and i've felt that in a few other cities in america like cleveland detroit mm. um these these like kind of like used to be grand cities that have all kind of like lost their shine but there's still a bunch of people who believe in it who live there you know yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything that's happening in Detroit right now is pretty cool for the I most love it. part. Like, All of it. Every single thing that happens in Detroit is pretty cool. Except for the Lions. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just lost 20 listeners. No, but Detroit, I, I feel like the, the last Detroit mayor got a lot of heat because he said something along the lines of how he wished that they had had their own Katrina. And which is a really insensitive thing to say and a really, like a really short sighted way of framing it. But I get what he's saying because there are a lot of cities that had a, a like a real protracted period of economic decline from uh, 50s and 60s through the 90s aughts and, and many still are in that that period as you know, the, in deindustrialization of America. There's a lot of I mean, people we, we've talked about some of that on the podcast, too. Um, and New Orleans had a precipitating event that brought a lot of attention to the city. But people would come down here and like, we'd, you know, do tours when I, when I was doing volunteer work and we'd show people around in Central City, which did flood a little bit, but people were like, oh my God, it's, it's so sad what Katrina did to this neighborhood. It was like, no, this neighborhood looked a lot like this before the storm. <laughs> you know, there's so many houses were emptied and got it out. And the, but we had an event that brought national attention. And Detroit, you know, they were there, the, arguably the disaster that befell the city of Detroit was just as complete. Like 90% of the city was basically emptied out, um, but there was no precipitating event. So 
uh, they never got the national attention all yeah. at once that that we got that gave them the chance to do that hard reset and get a lot of uh, resources. There was nothing for everyone to rally against, you know. Like we could all say, like hur- the hurricane was terrible and it and it did all these bad things, mm. but they can't rally against just blight in, in <laughs> yeah. Detroit, you know. You know, on the other side of that coin as well, though, too, without having that national like spotlight on you, like we had down here in New Orleans. Uh, the people who are rebuilding Detroit right now, they're from Michigan. They are from Detroit. There's people who are really passionate. Same thing with Cleveland as well. It's people who love Cleveland and want to make it as good as possible. We definitely have that down here in New Orleans, but also there are so many outside influences as well. People who came because of the storm or how they ended up here. I mean, you ended up here kind of because of that coal as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't, I mean, I always loved New Orleans. I'd visited a couple of times. I mostly just did the Mardi Gras thing like a lot of people do on their first couple of visits. Yeah. But I always felt up that peculiar gravity of New Orleans. So mm-hmm. I think I probably would have wound up here one way or another. But right. the storm was the event that was like, oh, I need to get down there and help. Right. But so much of that redevelopment and like reestablishing of the so-called new New Orleans is really, you know, a product of that influx of money, of attention and everything like that from Katrina. So I I think it's a really interesting to look at the two things. It's like the slower, like which one is more sustainable in the long run, the slower, like natural rehabilitation of the city or kind of this like, you know, natural disaster, artificial injection of like whatever. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Only time will tell, I guess. Yeah. The, the great conversation for our comedy episode. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we're, gonna t- we're actually going to talk about some pretty heady shit today. I don't know if you... Uh, Let's talk we'll, about we'll coastal erosion, guys. <laughs> we did, oh, we've done that, that episode. episode. <laughs> um, all right. So you're we had a juggler on for that episode. Went to, you went to school at LSU. Mm-hmm. How, was, how was Baton Rouge? I... I, I I hated it when I had to when I had to spend Ooh. a lot of time there. The first when I first moved to New Orleans, a lot of our a lot of our our, our core the AmeriCorps program I was with was was headquartered in Baton Rouge. We had to go up there once or twice a week, and it was always just like, oh god. What? Well, <laughs> as a like fresh faced eighteen year old, you know, going to college who had been supremely sheltered throughout his life, um, I had a major awakening in in Baton Rouge. So I loved it for for the the four years that I was there. Um, but now going back, I, I can't stand it. I mean, there's very little real culture there. Sorry, Baton Rougeans, um, <laughs> except for LSU football. Um, I mean, it's hard to even do comedy shows there. Um, it, they, the people there, the audiences tend to have kind of like a, I don't know. It's like an old timey, uh, strange, like it, it's like, so one of the shows that, that I do, um, that I produce is, uh, called the air sex championships. And so we've done that show all over America and you can all, whenever we go into like Bible belt towns or really even weird towns, like up in, um, like Philadelphia and stuff where it's like blue collar towns, people are so reserved and private and they hear sex and they just think, Ugh, we can't talk about that or laugh at that. And we get that in Baton Rouge. It feels like we're in one of those weird small towns that hasn't had anyone like, like a, a town mic- from Footloose. <laughs> I have not seen Footloose. I'm sorry. But you're I, familiar with the conceit, right? That it's a small town that had banned dancing. Go oh, on. really? I didn't and know that. And then what happened? Kevin Bacon saves it. All right. Really? Okay. So Let's now, spend the rest of the podcast. You telling me what happens in Footloose. <laughs> now I want to see it. Spoiler alert. They kick off their Sunday shoes. Ah. You know, the remake of Footloose, to be on a tangent here, it's not too bad, actually. Well, it was directed by somebody who had who'd done some, some pretty... Oh, I won't dive that deep into it. I don't know. It okay. just wasn't that bad for a remake. <laughs> Neat. Who was the, who was the lead in that? I mean, 
Oh, some, some kid. <laughs> so I need to see two Footlooses now? Yes. <laughs> don't see the second one. You won't understand it at all if you don't see the first one. Footlooses. Feet loose? Feet loose. Feet loose. <laughs> Anyways. So. Yeah. Okay. So, but that's, that's kind of funny that it's like coming from a, a small town, you know, a small, a small cow town to go to Baton Rouge. You're like, Wow. Look at this place. This is amazing. And then once you see it in compared to another city, it's like, oh shit, this place is lame. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's like, can you, but now you go to LA all the time because you do all the, you know, you're yeah, I'm a like, big time filmmaker. I lived in LA for 10 years. So was it that was, after the storm? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's, let's double back. You went to LSU. Uh, what, what did you, what did you study? I was a double major. Uh, I started out in finance, and then about a year and a half in, I decided, um, oh, I don't want to do a nine-to-five-day job like this. Like I'd worked in some of those and just thought, this is soul-crushing. So um, I became a creative writing major and a poultry science major. Poultry so science? I, I got degrees in animal dairy poultry and creative writing. You're huh. a chicken doctor? I could be. But I guess you never got the doctor. How close are those colleges to each other? Is it like you have to jump on a bus like it's like 10 miles apart? It's like, okay, time to take like, you know, my writing class. All right, time to go. They're on, the I really hope they're in the same building. They're, yeah, they're, <laughs> it's the same campus, but not the same building. No, no. Big school. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's that. Uh, yeah, I got I got those degrees. And most people take the poultry degree and like become vets or something. Mm. But um, or go work in a poultry plant. And I did not want to do either of those. Yeah, things. that sounds terrible. Did you did you want to when you got the degree? What what was, what, no. were, what was your plan? You're like, I'm going to do poultry science. I mean, this sounds I... well, this sounds weird. But so I was in these like honors classes and one of my honors professors was the head of the poultry science department and so i'm a sophomore in college and he comes up to me one day and he's like what what are you what are you doing here and i was like i don't know and he's like he's like can i look at your like act and sat scores and i was like yeah sure and then he was like so you have really good like high scores but like what do you want to do in college and i'm like i don't want to be in finance anymore i think i want to write and he's like we'll tell you what if you'll come work for me and you'll agree to get an animal dairy poultry degree, um, I will kind of take you under my wing and help you get because I had a four year scholarship and I was like, I ain't got no money. I got to get a degree before this is up. And he's like, if you listen to me, I will help you get both of your degrees huh. in four years. And from that point forward, I was like 21 hours every semester going to summer school. Like I busted my ass Damn. to get those degrees. A kindly poultry science professor <laughs> took <laughs> you under his wing. He did though. It's nice. <laughs> it's so weird, but he really did. That's um, right. And, and, and it like, it just, it, it helped me real. Cause a lot of people, when they get to college, especially when someone like me, I was like, I was, I was discovering alcohol for the first time and sex and all these things. Like it would have been real easy for me to fall off the face of the earth at that point. But he kind of was just like, no dude, you're here to learn. And this is your, your thing. Nice. That's great. with such a big school as well. I never got that at Tulane while I was there and I fell off the face of the earth with the, <laughs> yeah. with the alcohol, not so much sex, but uh, you know, definitely the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Do you ever find, I feel like people who like nobody, nobody, actually gets work in what they study as an undergraduate. It's it's so rare that somebody like, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna study, you know, medieval history and then they get a job at studying medieval history professionally. Nobody does that. Yeah. Um especially people in the in the liberal arts. But are there ever times when something that you learned in chicken school 
affects your day to day. And you're like, man, I'm really glad that I knew how to tell when eggs are off or what, what, like, oh, when man. does that seep through? Cause I, I was a history major and I think the people, you know, it, it is, it's a surprisingly practical degree though. Cause it, it teaches you to like collect and synthesize a wide variety of information and then regurgitate a useful analysis of that information. That's a, that's a practical skill to have in the, in the real world. So like, I, I get to use my degree to a certain extent. I, I, I have a hard time finding an application for chicken science. <laughs> um, well, some of the things that I did were these poultry judging competitions, and they're kind of a big deal. There's like school rivalries and stuff that nobody knows about except for the people who do them. This is like 4-H um, stuff? And it's sort of like you walk up and you can like have these egg laying chickens and you like squeeze them and feel all around them, and then you grade them based on that. Or you can also like... There are competitions where you get eggs and you hold them up in front of flashlights and you pick out the little meat spots or blood packets that are in there. And like, so basically I could like, if you have a chicken that you want to know if it's like a good grade of chicken, bring it to me. I'll touch it a bunch. I'll tell you. Or if you have an egg that is in your fridge that you think has gone bad or something, bring it to me with a flashlight and I'll tell you if it's okay. What's your opinion about the chickens out in like the uh, upper ninth ward and the bywater? Oh, I love free range chickens. I mean, I mean, just wandering around. You just, mean just like, wandering around the city? That's the best. Joining gangs. I that's mean, <laughs> the best thing for chickens to be doing is walking around, just eating little grubs and things. Like not eating all the the shitty um, like corn products that we feed. I mean, we grind up chickens like the dead ones that are diseased or whatever and just put them right into the cornmeal and feed them right back to them. So it's mm-hmm. all disgusting. <laughs> Commercial <laughs> chickens are really bad. So I'm all about those chickens that are walking around. And I guess, I don't know, who do people not own them? Or are they just kind of... I, I always have a feeling like somebody did own some chickens, and then they got away and say, oh, whatever, I don't need that chicken anymore. And they're just kind of like just running around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, have, I mean, I have friends who live in Gentilly who have a chicken coop in their backyard, and they eat fresh eggs, and they love it. And then occasionally one of the chickens starts to be a jerk, so they murder it and eat it for dinner. And then <laughs> yeah. like they just... Ur- urban farming, though, it's a, it's a thing. And chickens are, I think, one of the easier poultry animals to to keep in a small yard. For I would, sure, I would imagine. I'm no, I'm no chicken scientist. Yeah, they're really dumb animals. <laughs> like, like something to keep in mind is like a turkey could dr- could die of dehydration because it forgets that there's a water bowl on the other side of its pen. It can forget that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, makes me feel better about eating things. For, for, for whatever reason, when you, like, ever, ever, you have to kill something in order to eat. This is just sort of how eating works. Um, and people feel bad. The smarter an animal is, the harder it is to kill, I think. Um, but chickens, if they're, if they're basically as smart as corn, <laughs> so we're losing all of our vegetarian vegan listeners as well as all of our Baton Rouge listeners on this episode. That's pretty great. I'm oh, happy about all that. My aunt's going to be so mad. She's <laughs> Is she a vet vegan in Baton Rouge? No, just one of the two. Um, let's see. All right. So the, you finish up college. You've got your chicken degree. You've got your writing degree. And you still use one of those. Uh, but then you, that's when you moved to New Orleans. What, what, so I'm guessing like you came down to New Orleans several times while you were in school and then decided that's where the the action was well go ahead i mean so right my senior year of college is when i met um a bunch of other like 
comedian minded people. And so we all started a comedy website and uh, like we printed up a satire newspaper called the Campus Dirt that we put out on LSU's campus. So it's like I graduated college, but still hung around campus for like a good year and a half making stuff, making videos, putting videos up on the Internet before YouTube was even around. And then I just heard that there were that movies were starting to be produced in New Orleans. And so. I drove down here. Someone was teaching uh, a class on how to be a grip in movies. And so I just put myself in that class. And then like on the second day of class, I met this girl named Cassie who was like, hey, I'm working on the Growing Pains TV movie and they need a PA. Do you want to do that? I didn't even have anywhere to live here. So I was like, sure. I started working on that the next day, literally without a house. I just had to sleep in on a couch in the uh, in the warehouse that I was taking the grip classes for a few days until I could find an apartment here. Uh, so I wasn't having to drive back and forth to Baton Rouge. And then I just moved here and started working on movies and got witnessed to by Kirk Cameron many times. That's what I was just about to ask. It's like growing pains. Doesn't mean you met crazy Kirk Cameron. Oh yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Goodness. What? Did, okay, so you said he tried to. He so he's an. I mean, he's an evangelist now. For oh, those who yes. may not be aware, he's one of the bigger stars of the of the like the Christian Hollywood scene. For I don't know, is there a term for that? For like the that, faith-based that, films. Faith-based films. Thank you. Yeah, the kind of movies that Sean Hannity produces. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, he produces Christian films. Okay. The way he has one in theaters right now. That's, I didn't know that. It's a joke that writes itself. <laughs> yeah. The hell? Yeah, truth is stranger than fiction, guys. Um, but yeah, faith-based film. What did so? Did he actively try to get you to be a better Christian when you were working together, uh, or did yeah, he, well, or was he just like, oh no, no, we can be professional on the set. This is that's not what this is about. He, uh, he tried a couple of times, and it, like the second time he came up to me to to and launched into it, I was like, Kirk, we've already. And this was weird because I was like a young PA guy, not you know, I hadn't at that time I hadn't been around a lot of famous people, and I definitely had grown up watching this whole family right. of people. Um, I just had to be like, look, you know, there's really nothing that you can tell me that I don't know. Like I, when I, I grew up as a very sheltered kid and I've read the Bible cover to cover. Like, I've read the entire thing. I d- <laughs> it took me forever. It was a big waste of time because there's a lot of uh, just useless stuff in there, a lot of begats, begat, whoever um, passages in there. And I was like, there's nothing else for me to know. So, like, I don't, I don't need you to tell me any of this. And he was just kind of like, well, let me ask you this. Are you sure where you're going after you die? And I said, no one is. And he was just like, well, I disagree with you on that. And I was like, good. Okay, fine. Like, I don't, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> but he, he was nice. It was just uh, like an uncomfortable thing to, to do, you know? All right. So you're, you do, you're primarily working in the film industry in New Orleans for like, Ten years before the store, right? How ten long? years? How I, old I, am I? I don't know. What are you like? oh, I'm you? starting to guess. Growing Pains movie, ten years in LA. Yeah, like, was, how old are you? So that was 2004 um, when all that happened. And so I was working on movies until Katrina happened. Okay. What's the biggest film you worked on in the pre-Katrina landscape? That, People missed Growing Pains the movie. Was that it? That was the, that no, was the pinnacle? Um, <laughs> the biggest one I... Well, I did Dukes of Hazard. I did um, the... Uh, the uh, it was called Failure to Launch. 
I remember uh, that Matt, one. Matthew McConaughey and yeah, Sarah yeah, Jessica Parker. That's that's actually the last. Was Terry Bradshaw on that? He was, was the dad? and yeah. so was Kathy Bates and oh, yeah. uh, Zoe Deschanel. I mean, there was a really cool uh, Brad Cooper. Um, huh. th- there was there was a good cast there. It's just no one saw the movie because it was not good at all. Right. Hmm. The uh, where the public library is on Canal Street. That was like an office. or That something? was our office. Yeah, that was the office because it, it was. Oh, they always had a failure to launch like thing in the background and there's like a tree growing out of control and there's like this abandoned old bank that was like a movie office. I was the last person in that building before so Katrina's coming. Mm-hmm. I had the most of the cast and crew had flown out of the city by then. I had been so that movie shot here for a while and then in Alabama and then Maryland and they sent me to all those places. So I that summer I'd been living in Maryland for like two months and then a week before Katrina hits, I come home and it had been like Lots of hurricanes that summer, and so people were used to evacuating, and I was like, I just got home. I'm not evacuating. I'm going to go stay in the production office. There's food there. I, I have the keys to the place. I could park my car there, um, and I'm so glad that I did not do that because <laughs> when I came back like uh, after the storm a couple of months later, there was a watermark on there, and that whole building just sat there full of like – I, I would have had to get like airlifted yeah. to the Astrodome or something if I would have stayed in that building. Did you go? Did you go home? I to, evacuated to so like Saturday morning of Katrina. My mom called me crying because she grew up in Mississippi and had her home leveled by a storm long ago. And so she was like, "It's a Category Five. Would you please leave?" So I got on River Road and evacuated to Baton Rouge instead of sitting on the interstate with mm-hmm. everybody else for That's, a couple of days. That was a smart um, move. <laughs> and so yeah, then then stopped in Baton Rouge for a day to stay with like an ex-girlfriend but then uh quickly was just like we're not gonna then the levees broke and it was like I we have to find a more permanent solution so I went to Houston stayed with my family for a couple of days and then it was like everyone always says like you want to be a writer kid you got to move to New York or LA and so I asked a couple of my buddies I was like do y'all want to go to LA and we did were there a lot of people who were who did that specifically that were in New Orleans and were like trying to make a go of it in New Orleans and then Katrina hit and they're like all right where can, where's the place that I can do this where whatever that did, were there a lot of New Orleans expatriates in LA when you were there that had done gone on the same path but weren't necessarily no part of your cohort none really uh, other than just my group of buddies I mean I never met anybody that that was there you know I mean when when I showed up there and me and my buddies would like meet people and tell them like yeah we're from new orleans and they found out oh you were there during katrina it was a big deal because it was like we were aliens you know no one had met any refugees you know because not many people made their way out to la yeah and it's basically houston dallas atlanta yeah yeah that's pretty much it like even in north carolina when i was when I, where i was after the storm like i never ran into anybody else who was from new orleans while i was up there huh and yeah. so, like, I started working for this film director out in L.A., and she would take me around and introduce me to people, and she would say, this is Brock. He's from Katrina. <laughs> and I had to be like, first of all, Katrina's not a place. Second of all, don't start out introducing me to people with that, because then they, you know, their reaction like, is like, oh. oh, I'm so sorry. I don't need any of that. Like, I'm fine. I didn't get hurt. None of, you know, I lost very little stuff. You know, other people died and lost family members. Like, I did not. So, No. I don't need no pity. We've we've been talking around a little bit who your famous boss is. Um, you, this this film director who you mm-hmm. who, in whose circle you wound up and who's who you've been you've been the personal assistant of since then. You met in L.A., yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Do you feel comfortable just yeah. saying who this is? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. name one might recognize. Steve here wasn't here wasn't for, here for the pre interview. Well, so big reveal. Yeah, big reveal for Steve. Her name is Amy Hackerling. Oh well. So ta da! Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, she she did Fast Times at Ridgemont High. All Look right. who's talking. Uh, Clueless. Not at the Roxbury, which not many people know about. Um, <laughs> That's not on the top of her CV, that one. Right. Yeah. Clueless, uh, though. That means Clueless. Clu- Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless are both all-time like high school movie classics. It's really hard to pick out movies from the 80s and 90s that don't rep- like that represent the decade better. Like, like Clueless is the 90s, and yes, Fast Times at Ridgemont so, High like, is the 80s. Yeah, it's like, just... I don't even think we... Like, we don't have like the brief pop music... <laughs> like heyday of Scott without Clueless, like it, in, in more than just rep- you were just like, burning bridges left and right. No, but like there's so much about the '90s that like people say, look, oh, Clueless was a perfect representation of the '90s. Like, no, Clueless was on the forefront of yeah. that. Like a lot of the trends that people associate with the '90s are only trends because of Clueless, right. not yeah. the other way around. I was reading an article about the uh, the costume designer. Like the budget was like slashed or something like that. So they went out and they just bought like like bargain bin clothes and just like dressed it up a certain way and then that became fashionable after after the movie yeah. because of the movie her name is mona may she's a brilliant person nice. and, and she's worked with amy on on a few films and i mean people talk about her work people copy her work all the time and she doesn't i feel like she hasn't gotten that much credit like you know i, I know I, well, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know her name so i guess that's not enough credit but i i had heard the story about that i found the article to be very interesting and true really i mean just one of those things you think about and you're like I, that's what I really love about movies sometimes, too. You don't think about those smaller elements and, like, all the work that goes into making, like, a movie. It's like if you've got a good set does, like set dresser or something like that, then you don't really notice, like, ah, all those light switches are in the right place or the sockets are in the right place or the fans, like, the right way. But, like, that's a lot of hard work, you know? That's all that goes into making, like, that, you know, escapism kind of, like, reality where you can really enjoy a movie. Yeah. It's because Amy has just a really spot on unique vision. She knows what she wants to see on screen. Mm -hmm. So when Mona brought her these fashion choices, Amy was just like, that looks good. That looks good. And she just knows it. She knows what colors work. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, she's taught me so much about just visually how things need to flow in a movie. All right. So, and it just, have there is Amy ever the that sort of stereotypical Hollywood boss that's demanding things that don't you know you, first off you don't live in the same city it's it's rare that you're actually uh, not rare probably but it's not the norm that you don't you don't see her in person day to day so it's not like you know, this coffee is two degrees too cold peasant bring me another latte but there, is there any time that she's ever demanded something that was like that is literally something that does not exist and I cannot like is she ever that kind of stereotypical Hollywood boss? not in an unfair way I mean like there might be she she's there's times where she does she hates like technology and phones and all that stuff so like there's times where she may ask like request like is it possible to get like my email in this thing and i'm like those are two completely different things no like that doesn't work but she's never once and and this is i'm being totally honest she's never once in 12 years like raised her voice at me or been like impatient with me i've definitely screwed stuff up over the years. Um, but the, the only time she's ever been demanding is when she's on set 
And that's when she's like, she's not being demanding about her coffee temperature. She's being demanding of like, I want this to look as good as possible. I want the best work out of everybody. And there's times where people will push back on that. And, you know, for me, I kind of have to be her mouthpiece a lot of times Hmm. and say like, no, you got to trust her. Even though it sounds crazy, it's going to look good. All right. Well, in addition to his work as a personal assistant and a writer, Brock is a an actor, and we have uh, some. Uh, we have Brock Laborde's acting reel, which <laughs> if you if you look up Brock Laborde on the YouTube, it is the number one. Uh, it's the number one hit. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so uh, here we have it. Um, uh, is there anything you want to say to contextualize this clip before we uh, before we play it for our for our lovely listeners? No, I'd rather everyone not have any context. What's no context whatsoever. <laughs> All right, here without further ado is Brock Laborde acting real. Hi, the name's Brock Brock Laborde, and I'm looking to be the next big star. Will you take me there or not? As an actor, I can do just about anything. Romances, family, comedy, action, foreign, indie flicks, and adult. Do you have the right project that's right for me? Unfortunately, I don't have any examples of my acting to show you today. But I've taken a few classes and I think I would do pretty good. Did I mention I can sing? Well, I can. And even though I'm still looking for the right group of musicians to work with, I recorded a few songs on my own and I sent them out all over. So be sure to request me on your favorite radio stations, your iTunes, and your Xbox 360, or wherever fine music is sold. (coughs) And oh yeah, I'm also a cop. So maybe I can help you out if you have legal issues, as long as the offense isn't too serious. If you happen to see my good friend Chris True's reel, he'll tell you all about how I helped him out a few times. Under the table, of course. On the side, I make demo reels, just like the one you're watching now. Do you have clients in need of a professional reel? Feel free to pass along my contact info to them, and maybe I'll have time to make one for them. I think I will. Before I go, I'd like to mention that I'm usually more clean-shaven than this, but my battery's razor needs charging. Also, if you'll notice to my left, my girlfriend Tammy. She's an actress too, so if you want to use her, feel free to contact me about that. Good night. Thanks for your help and for watching our reel. Good night. All right, it's time for our regular interstitial segment here on Around with Stephen Cole. We're going to hop behind the bar. Steve is going to be making a drink for us today. So, Steve, what do you got in store? Oh, I've got a cocktail that's going to be featuring tequila this week. And in uh, in the spirit of our comedy segment that we're featuring, the name of this drink is going to be called No Laughing Matter. I kind of like to think about this as like uh, writing a joke. Uh, a lot of bartenders will come up with the name of a drink and then kind of work in what ingredients they want to use. Uh, so I decided I wanted to make a tequila drink, and I wanted there to be a couple surprises, like a bit of a punchline to this drink. So uh, we are going to be using one of our fantastic sponsor brands, Corlejo Tequila. Corlejo Tequila. We're going to put about an ounce and a half in here. About an ounce and a half? 
This is not a. This is for the home bartenders. You know, yeah. if you don't have a jigger, just 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 about an ounce and a half. I do agree with that. A lot of bartenders. I think I think I'm not alone in that. Like like many bartenders, I have a long list of unused cocktail names that I'm just waiting for the right drink <laughs> the to come along. Little black book of cocktail drinks. Yeah, it's like I have a lot of cocktail names that I've come up with, and it's not that hard to come up with a new cocktail. It's just a matter of pairing the two. That's the real art to it. Right on. Uh, the next spirit we're going to use, and this is going to be the sweetener inside of this drink. Uh, it's going to be Borghetti Coffee Liqueur. Delightful. We're going to throw half an ounce in there. And next, we're going to put a citrus blend of juices. We're going to use not only uh, lime juice, which is typical to margarita, but also orange juice. We're going to do that in equal proportions. We're going to do a half ounce of both of those. Okay. Orange juice is, it, it kind of goes underutilized in cocktails. I mean, it's got, it's, you got your screwdrivers, you got your mimosas, you got your, you know, but other than the blood and sand, I don't think there's a ton of classic cocktails that that prominently feature orange juice as their citrus. Yeah, well, I think orange juice is there's big consistency issues with orange juice to begin with. I think that like uh, <laughs> like you know, and the point of a bar is to put out consistent cocktails. So with orange juice, like a blood and sand, it's like never turns out the same way, unfortunately, because <laughs> orange juice is just very different. That's why uh, using orange juice supplemented by other citrus juices, citrus juices, part of me. <laughs> It allows to have a more consistent profile. So you're taking that acidity and the floral nature from the lime juice and combining it with that sweetness that's going to be from the orange juice, and you come up with a much more consistent cocktail. I think orange. It, it also it even uh, adjusting for the inconsistency. It tends to not have the a level of acidity relative to the sugar that your your lemon and your lime does. It doesn't really balance out a cocktail in the same way. Absolutely, that's a fantastic point. Uh, the last ingredient that we're going to put inside of this cocktail is going to be a couple dashes or droppers because this particular bitter uses droppers. Uh, eight drops equals a dash, by the way, for all of you home mixologists and professional <laughs> bartenders out there. So we're going to put 16 drops of uh, bitterins, Hellfire uh, bitters into this. This is a habanero shrub, uh, so it's going to add a little kick. That's the punchline. That's the uh, no laughing matter of this cocktail. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Ice, of course. This will be a shaking cocktail. Gonna give this a nice hard shake. And we are going to serve this up in a coupe glass. Uh, we've made a little bit of a salt cayenne blend. We're going to rim this. Whenever I rim for a margarita, I never do a full rim on the glass because I think it's important that people are able to, you know, take a sip of the drink, have a little bit of salt. In this case, it's a little bit of spice and a little bit of salt, and they can take a sip of the drink as well. So we're just going to put that on about a quarter of the glass uh, for anybody who's never rimmed a glass before. Just take a piece of uh, lime if you wanted to and moisten the edge of the glass and just put it in whatever the dry spice and it should stick to the end. No. And all right. That's looking good. So pretty. And there we have it. That is our no laughing matter. It's hilarious. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's grab these drinks and head back out to the patio or the recording studios. We like to <laughs> like to think of it at 12 Mile Limit and get back to the show. All right. Check us out for part two of our comedy week. You guys seem like a very friendly group, uh, but I do have to warn you. I'm going to see a lot of you after the show. I am a hugger. Uh, I warn you because I know that's creepy. When you are a hugger, a lot of people are like, hey, I just want to touch hands. And I'm like, I'm pressing my whole body on your whole body. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> I've, I've 
tried to be a lady handshaker, it doesn't go well. Because when you're a lady handshaker, I hang out with a lot of guys doing comedy. And they'll all shake hands goodbye. And then I'll like put out my hand, shake. And two things happen. Uh, one, they'll make a noise. They'll go like, oh. <laughs> like, look at this little business lady. <laughs> Just trying to make a deal. Oh. Or if they just shake my hand normally and I squeeze it really hard, then they'll go, ah, firm handshake. Which is the same as being like, you are a handsome woman. And I don't like that either. Doesn't feel good. All righty, y'all. We're back from break here. We're going to be joined by one of our fantastic regulars and also a stellar comedian here uh, uh, in the New Orleans comedy scene. Uh, you just heard a little bit from her. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Laura Sanders. Hi, Laura. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us on our podcast on this lovely Friday afternoon. Why, thanks for having me. Laura, for those of you who may not be aware, is one of the co-hosts of our open mic night here at 12 Mile Limit on Monday nights at 9. Sign up at 8.30. It's called Bear With Me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Laura's been doing that for a little... How long have you been one of the co-hosts? Because none of the founders are, are with us anymore. I know. They're, they're all... It sounds like they all died. They all died and went to New York. Yeah. They died and went to Brooklyn. <laughs> Um, I've, been doing it, I've been doing it for uh, probably like a year and a half and then Kate Mason joined me just a few months ago when Julie Mitchell who rest in peace in New York oh. moved away miss so. you Julie I know every day and, and every Monday specifically much like our uh, our guest from the first half who is still with us Brock um, you moved here from what you grew up in kind of a small town and a bit of a. Uh, I moved here from Ohio, so I moved here from a city in Ohio, but I grew up in a small town in Ohio. Grew up in a small town in Ohio. But I was an adult in a city in Ohio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, it, it seems like that. Like a lot. Do people still come to New Orleans to try to make it in the comedy scene? Is that a, is there enough of a comedy scene here that it has that kind of gravity? Um, I I don't think that people come here to be like, and that's when like you know moviestars.com will see me and find me and I'll be famous. No, I don't think I don't think that if someone was looking just purely from a, a career strategy, they wouldn't be like, oh, that's the city I'm going to move to. But I think it's very important as a comedian that you. Uh, have good content in and live in a city that you really enjoy and you find inspiring. So I moved here with another really talented comedian, Kamari Stevens, and we were both kind of like, yeah, we could move to a big city and kind of hate every day of our existence because it that's not cut out for us as far as like where we wanted to be right now. Or we could move to New Orleans and write a bunch and be around a bunch of talented people. And there's certainly enough of a scene that you can be constantly growing and writing here and like having great stage time. So no, I don't, it's not like a destiny. I wasn't like, you know, a little kid in Ohio with posters of New Orleans in my room <laughs> next to the comedy posters. But it, I think it's a great place to move if you want to become a better comedian. So let's uh, jump back just a little bit because I don't think we touched on it with Brock in the first half. And I'd love to hear from you as well, Laura, um, just because if we've got anybody out there who is interested in getting into comedy and think that they're a funny person, um, how did y'all get into comedy? Let's go ahead and start with Brock. How did, how did you get into comedy originally? Uh, that was at LSU. I, I just started writing stuff. And then basically, like, I got published in one of the local, um, like, newspapers on campus. And then they were like, hey, you like comedy stuff? Uh, there's these other guys who are kind of wanting to put together, like, a sketch comedy TV show. And maybe y'all would, too. And so we had 
we I met that's when I met Chris True and a couple of other people that he was working with and we made a sketch comedy TV show on Tiger TV on the campus TV station for like two years and there was nowhere to cut our teeth there was nowhere to learn even how to do stand up there was like maybe one or two open mics in Baton Rouge at the time back this is like 2001 um there was one improv group called the family dinner um uh that, at the time uh and we just didn't get exposed to much live comedy so we were just making up a lot of it you know on our own um and then then later on wound up taking like some improv classes and stuff like that and having some actual comedy training but mm-hmm. that's how I got into it right on how about you for you Laura um, I was a speech team nerd in high school, and oh, yeah? I liked that kind of performing. So what I was a, like, "What event? Uh, impromptu speaking? Impromptu? Yes. I was so. a congressional debater myself. Oh, you were <laughs> you were one of the tough ones. NFL. That's, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I uh, yeah, I did just like little made up speeches there, and I kind of got that bug, and I did some performing stuff. And then in college at OSU, I started doing stand up in uh, in stand up comedy competitions that I dragged my poor sister to that were like. 32 people all trying it for the first time in a competition and all that. But then there was a, a little, uh, the scene in Columbus was good to start in. And, and yeah, and then you just kind of get addicted to it and you keep going out to mics. And, and here I am. <laughs> many years later. <laughs> and many years later, here I am. So uh, is there a distinct moment in time that you can remember? Maybe your first time doing stand up comedy or uh, a time when like that sticks out to you that was like that hooked you into comedy. Like was there was there a particular moment where you got to perform and said, you know what, I could I could do this. This is something I would like to continue doing. I mean, I just always like performing and I've always been kind of a bit of a I guess not a ham, but I've just like enjoyed making people laugh. So the first time doing it, I actually started with a friend and we started on the exact same day. And the first time doing it, he was like, I'm never doing this again. And I was like, I'm always doing this forever. <laughs> and so I think it was like that solidified it. But I, I always wanted to do it in one way or another. I think it was when, so we, when we started printing up a satire newspaper and putting it on, on LSU's campus, we, one of the articles we wrote was, um, raising canes to introduce low fat menu. And it was like a really dumb article about like, awesome. they would just <laughs> take a bite out of the toast and leave <laughs> one extra chicken finger out. And we started getting emails from people at raising cane saying people are calling us asking for our diet menu. And that was when I was like, Okay, I want to d- make dumb comedy stuff that makes <laughs> that makes people think that there's fake diet menus at fast food restaurants. <laughs> people, I've I I go up at our open mic once every couple of months at this point. I'm not a recurrent, uh, a frequenter, but I, I I've done enough comedy. And one of the things that I have I struggle with is that I it it feels redundant and i know that when you stand up you want to be like have your routine and hone it and hone it and get it to a point where it's it's pretty it's it's basically the same every time but and then an improv is sort of the opposite that every time is sort of fresh and different and vibrant and you're you're responding to new stimuli and i've heard it described that like that improv artists have a hard time with stand up because they don't like doing the same jokes again. I do you, can, is that, do you think that's true or I, is that just something I heard? I definitely, <laughs> no, I share that completely with you. I, I have done stand up all over the place. I, it, I've always like felt corny telling the same joke twice. I don't, I don't, I don't think it is corny. I just know that's I'm how I, <laughs> that's how I felt. I just felt like fake or something. Like it just wasn't something that 
I liked to do. Um, I And I also was, I'm not very comfortable being myself in front of a group of people. I'd rather be a character or something. I just don't, I've never felt like, oh, wow, people just can't wait to hear Brock Laborde's take on this. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that, but that's just all my opinion. <laughs> Where I feel like for I've done stand up or I've done stand up a bunch and improv a few times, and because I'm a stand up more, I'm so punchline focused that I'm such a selfish, selfish improviser. So I can never really do it because I'm like, actually, the very funny line that I could say is right here, right now. And so it is just like I think your brains are just wider, and some people can pull off both and do it very elegantly. But I'm such a stand up more than or like sketch person where I'm like I want to write the best thing and I will hone it until it is the best thing and it's my thing not the team's <laughs> thing and and so I feel like it is I can commiserate with being like I feel weird in these shoes because I am so used to these other ones <laughs> I tried doing improv in high school and I, I used to do, uh, write sketch comedy uh, a little bit and always had a lot of fun with that and I, I think I'm can write a decent joke every now and then um but improv was just horrible for me i was the worst like have you guys ever seen the office you, mm-hmm. you watch that yeah. show have you seen the episode where like uh, steve carell goes to his improv class and he's just like <laughs> so every painful. single sketch he just pulls a gun on somebody yeah. <laughs> uh that that was me i literally in college uh I, I went with one of my friends to this improv uh group that they were starting and they were doing like open auditions and I was just like hanging out like in the crowd and they were like okay everybody's doing an improv scene I was like fuck so I got up there I definitely pulled a gun on somebody that improv scene. it was so embarrassing it was the worst thing ever but uh, so no improv after that for no, me. that was it that was the last time I don't I don't I've never done improv I've done like I said I just stand up every once in a while and I enjoy that but I've never like not since high school drama class I, mean, it was just I always like like structured improv games like those are like easy like classic ones like world's worst or things like that yeah where, where it's like, like you can do it for like fun versus like i need to have this like deep rooted skill of right yeah it's like just thinking of one-liners or something like that i could do that but like just saying okay here's a scene and go it's no like, good oh. long-form improv i do feel like is one of the more challenging things performance wise to like do I've, yeah. I've, I've never been i've never done i did a, the improv i've done they're like oh and then we're gonna have this long form portion that you can hop in on and i was like no i cannot i will <laughs> i'm not trained for that nor will i be good at it yeah because so. it, it's like i mean the short form stuff it, it i i understand why it makes sense to y'all because you're you're used to the the punch lines and those like simple like here's the premise and then here's the thing yeah finding like a quick wit response and then it being over with yeah <laughs> but long form it's almost like you're turning yourself over and kind of losing your mind for a few minutes and just letting other like getting swept up in a scene or a moment you know and you're having these emotions and everything it's it's it can be a lot more intense yeah Mm -hmm. how frustrating not frustrating but like what are the challenges of having to work with like you know other comedians that you've never worked with before like getting put into a position like i imagine like a good improv truth there's a lot of trust and like understanding like how people work and like balancing characters and everything like that but just jumping in there with someone you've never been with before and just trying to have to like make your personalities fit together it because certain scenes or theaters teach certain styles of things so i've seen like um members of five mega talented improv groups all like m- do a mashup show where they're all getting to play together mm-hmm. and it and they're all brilliant in their groups but in that mashup show it fa- it gets fucked up no so so you know just kind of like um maybe some people are a bit they focus on game more than 
premise or straight absurd dynamic or something. And or there's just people who are loudmouths who like to jump on like they make the wrong choice for the scene, but they're getting their funny kind of like Do what, you mean Laura Sanders? I'm <laughs> calling you a loudmouth. I'm just saying no, I, there there are people who are uh, like I'm sure you would not be like you've been on stage before. You're a professional. That's comedian. I choose not to do improv because I don't want to put myself in that situation. <laughs> Where I want to grab those punchlines out of the air. And so, no, I like, I understand that you, there is definitely a difference between someone who like knows that they would be like that and then someone who's just like, I'm gonna just take the scene wherever I want. Well, they said that about Joan Rivers, that she was a terrible improver. Really? They said that there was a scene where a guy ran in and was like, oh my God, honey, I've had the most horrible day. And he like listed off all of these like content rich things you could build a scene on. And she goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen you before in my life. <laughs> and by the way, I've got a gun. <laughs> and you know she got a big laugh, but totally. And that's like I'm like, oh, I'd want that big laugh. Yeah. <laughs> but if no one ran across the stage and edited that scene, yeah, then where nothing. did it go? Yeah. Uh, so, in your opinion, Brock, uh, for audience consumption, which do you think is easier, short form or long long form improv? Oh, short form, for yeah. sure, because there's actually been TV shows of short form. There's been Whose Line Is It Anyway? Right. That's what everybody knows. Um, it, like, like People are weirded out when they come to the new movement, and at none of our shows do we ever ask for suggestions, mm-hmm. because we just know that it's a pretty useless thing to right. do. So, but people are like, well, then why don't you? Because y'all are writing it ahead of time. And it's like, we're not here to pull the wool over your eyes and be putting <laughs> all this work in, yeah, into these shows. <laughs> You're like then we would just do a sketch show and we call it a sketch show. It's not against the law. To do a sketch show. Yes. Who fooled you at this free comedy show. What's uh? Let's talk about the new movement. When did when did that become a thing? Is you you were let's say okay we're we'll backtrack a little bit. You're in L.A. You were there for a few years post Katrina. Then what what precipitated your move back to New Orleans and when? Did the new movement come to be a thing that existed here in New Orleans? So while I was in L.A., I was producing comedy like we were shooting a lot of comedy like sketches and stuff and series and putting them up and chris true who was in austin at the time he and tammy had started another improv theater called cold town with some other people and i would you know go i would do shows there and i i I would interact with them and 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 visit austin and chris would come out to la and we would do some writing together and filming and stuff and then basically in 2009 um, Chris and Tammy split off from Cold Town and they were like, we want to start our own thing. And they didn't have a business background and I did. And so they were like, can you help us run this? Can you help us do it? And so, cause I was already running our production company. And so I just agreed to do that and I ran it from afar back in 2009. And then in like 2011 or 12 is when they moved back to New Orleans. And then we had two theaters. Um, and then right around t- 2015 was when I just, we, we were going to open up a bar in our theater here. We'd moved to a bigger venue and we were going to open a bar. And I was like, you know, I don't feel right being across the country trying to do this. Like I, I, it needed to be really well managed. So that's why I, I came back here to have more of a hands-on uh, a, a involvement in that. So the I, I kind of always assumed that it had it grew in New Orleans and then like bled over into Austin, but it's kind of it. So it started sort of both cities simultaneously. Sort of well, I mean, it was in a, it was in Austin. We were in like a one room little tiny place in like a rough neighborhood for like about a year and a half, and then 
simultaneously a an amazing space in downtown Austin fell into our laps while also Chris and Tammy were realizing they wanted to move back here and we had a whole community spring up here like instantaneously so it was like it was a really weird moment for me as the business brain of it to try to make sense of this it was like explosive growth and how do we we i didn't come from money neither did did chris or tammy we didn't have investors we didn't have any way to to get our hands on a big chunk of money so we just had to like grow it organically and bootstrap it you know as we as we did i think that's i i I feel like maybe it's just because i've uh seen don't think twice um but the 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 impression that there's no money to be made in improv that it's just somebody's rich dad that's <laughs> making it all possible but you you're you have a business background this is a business yeah you 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 guys have a, a profitable business model that seems to work in multiple like you have franchises essentially I mean, multiple cities how <laughs> digestible you, fast food improv <laughs> kind of I mean but what what sort of systems do you have in place because I think when when you're when you're developing a business especially if you're gonna have more than one location for that business it's not so much about making making a product it's sort of a, a making the environment we're creating that product is possible so what what sort of systems have you developed to make this multiple city enterprise function as a as a as a business well i mean it's been challenging because there's not a roadmap. there's no like i can't go buy a book of like so you want to start an improv theater here's what you do <laughs> um there's people who who attack it in many different ways there's the whole nonprofit versus profit thing there's the do we focus only on more of a theatrical community kind of a thing or do, are we trying to book out of town people and be bringing in bigger talent and working in are we trying to develop like shows that we do runs of are we trying to do weekly shows monthly shows like i mean there's so many ways to attack it um i guess our strategy has just been like focus on the community give like make an imp be teaching an improv product that you can't get anywhere else we're not just copying you know improv olympics uh curriculum and then you know putting our name on it um and then developing the talent and we're we've also been developing talent in cities that weren't really known for comedy you know so like not only are we having to educate the market especially in new orleans that hey you should go see comedy shows but we're also trying to like foster the young comedic minds that you know i wish someone had done that for me when i was 21 getting into comedy i wish there was a good like safe place to go to work on it because i mean in la i would go to the open mics there and they were brutal i mean you're just sitting there with a bunch of other like comics who don't they don't want to hear you they're just waiting for their time to get up on stage and that's not a good way to learn i don't think yeah Mm-mm. that's a that's a really good point um i i there's a lot of camaraderie just from working a few monday nights here at at 12 mile like it seems like y'all get together as comedians and there's great feedback you know y'all are supportive it's a lot of active listening it's just like you, you want each other to succeed uh i got to do the close me out show uh, oh, over nice. at the hi-ho lounge uh two months ago i think or a couple months ago 
and uh, it was it was nerve wracking. <laughs> like, like I, I like I kept like um, I kept uh, messaging the host to give me more instructions, and like I, it just like it's like how exactly long am I supposed to go? Like what can I talk about? It's like anything. Shut the fuck up. When I started, talk. I would be very detailed. Right. I'm like, and if a bird flies by during my set, what should I do? And it's like it was very. I had so many questions. But I uh, so I did my little story about getting drunk at some point, and then I got off a stage, and like you know, a couple people who I met here at Twelve Mile were like, hey, that was pretty good. You know, that was a lot of fun right if you want to like do some more like you should you should think about it and like you know it's a lot of fun and like it was like crazy that like you know three people would be like that was pretty good amateur guy who was probably sweaty and i don't know <laughs> like weird do you find i mean uh rock your your role is in in large part being an an actual educator to like teaching people how to do comedy but but uh laura you as somebody who runs an open mic do you find that you take on that role also, that people come to you after after the night is over and be like, "Hey, can you can you give me notes? Can you like what can I do to improve?" Because a lot of people come and like their first ever time doing stand up is at a show where you are the professional, which is crazy because they're so I know it's like such a nervous thing for them. I think as much as people all the time, my biggest pet peeve of people will, for weeks will be like. I think I'm going to try it. Do you have any tips? I'm going to do it. Do you have any tips? And it's like, do it. Because I think the best teachers are the audience and other comics when they see you a bunch of times. So I think you'll have someone come do it one time and then be like, so how do I improve? And you're like, come back next week is how you improve and do it again and again. And certainly like, I think it's really helpful that we do have so, so much talent in the community because people give you tags and feedback and there's definitely like writing will improve by people listening and giving feedback. But as far as starting from just like, little tadpole comedian and like growing it's you just have to keep doing it over and over and i think that's kind of the hard lesson to learn for people that are just starting is they're like i did it once now what and you're like (laughs) oh just see you next monday as a a stand-up post too i think i'd imagine one of the difficulties is there's different degrees of talent as far as stand-up comedy goes and there's some people who it just I don't know. I, I, I see a lot of people like here and in North Carolina seeing stand up. You see the same people over and over again at some of these open mics. And it's just like, oh, that person's not really improving that much. He's not really getting funnier, honestly, like just to be completely point blank. But uh, what is the difficulty of being a host for the most part and kind of regulating, you know, somebody who might not be as funny, somebody who is really funny or like somebody who's just a wild card? Like, how do you how do you like, you know, run your show in order to try and keep the audience engaged and make the best show possible? Um, I think there is. It's really nice that we get to arrange the list. So if there's just some people that we're not sure we can sandwich them in between people. It's also just the understanding that's an open mic. Like if I. If I, I think there's many really talented people performing every Monday, but there are new people and there are just randoms from out of town that could say anything. And so it's a balance of this is an open mic. People can say what they want. And then also my main priority is that the audience always feels like they're having a safe, nice time. And so if someone goes up there and is a complete maniac, I'm going to limit what they <laughs> like. I'm going to be like, okay, time to, you're making everyone very, very uncomfortable point of like audience not coming back or other comics not feeling safe in the space. But other than that, you just have to kind of understand like that anyone who signs up at eight 30 can go up. And there's a magic to that too. Like you'll get to see some stuff that you'd never see on a book show because you would never ever want to see that on a book show, but you get to <laughs> just enjoy that. Like you just get like a two hour slice of humanity every Monday night that yeah. you just get to enjoy. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Laura and I, we've, we've talked a little bit about this offline. Um, we had three hosts at the beginning of bear with me and all of them were women and all of them are very progressive politically and also very funny. Mm-hmm. And since then, 
all of the original three hosts have moved to New York, but that the the new hosts that we brought in, you and, and Kate, are are also women, as you might have guessed have from noticed. Kate's name. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, was that that was by design to a certain extent? Was it was it were you trying? Because I unfairly, I think that the twelve mile limit open mic has sort of taken on a reputation to a certain extent as the feminist comedy night. That's true. <laughs> um, and but I think that's like that's kind of bullshit. It's just like people are just talking about their experiences, and a lot of them are women because it's a women hosted event. So it's it's become like where like misogynistic comedy is kind of frowned on here, and it doesn't usually go over well with our particular crowd. Um, how much of that is by design? How much of that is just women talking about their own experiences, and that sort of people treat that like a like a niche product because it's. Oh, well, that's lady comedy. And yeah. do, do you have pushback against that? How do, how do you navigate that? I mean, I think as far as like how it, by design, we didn't like all gather around a candle and just like decide <laughs> that we're like, this one's going to be ours, ladies. Like, how are we taking them down? <laughs> Not this time. I know. So, Where is this candle? I mean, I was lucky enough to just kind of be like adopted into it. And so as far as the design of it being a room that I really like the vibe of a lot of the time, like that's all the hosts and the founders that started it. But now I think it is just, it's, it's making room for all of the different voices. So as far as like, it comes off as kind of a more feminist open mic, I think it is just because there happens to be more women and like more women feeling safe and talking about what their day is, leaves space for more women. And they're like, Oh, that seemed to go well there. And honestly, I think there's a lot of value I'm not saying other open mics in New Orleans are not feminist. Like you, like a lot of, there's a lot of strong female comedians in this scene and a lot of other like non-female comedians that are great and strong in this scene. And I think it's a benefit to the, like the whole scene in the city that every mic has kind of a different audience coming to it. Like, or you'll have some shows that are, it's mostly an older tourist crowd. So you have to deal with, cause I do see here there's, I love how liberal and feminist it is. But you do have a trick where if you're only performing here every Monday and then you go and take that same bit to, you know, House of Blues on a Wednesday where it's a tourist crowd coming in from Minnesota, you just think like, oh, this killed two days ago. And I think the nice thing about New Orleans is that you can kind of round off any bit. And I've talked to other comedians about this where they take a new joke and they perform it at each different performance space throughout the week and they see how it goes everywhere. Um, so... I really like that the one that I host, I'm lucky enough that it was kind of set up to be a strong run by women event. I wanted a female co-host and Kate Mason is amazing and asked to do it. And I was so happy she did because I was going to ask her anyway. <laughs> and then, um, and then as far as creating the space, the audience here does a great job of creating the space. A couple weeks ago, a traveling guy just was like, so my ex-girlfriend's a bitch and just uh, like you could hear a cricket sneeze at him. Like it was amazing because it's just, if you train the audience to kind of like, great comedy then they train new comics to deliver great comedy and mm. so that's something i'm grateful that happens here and then some people are just horrible and you just have to wait three minutes and then they're done <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but that brings up a really good point about one of the strengths of new orleans as a comedy city is it's like if you were a road comic and you're getting to test your material out on those different markets you get to do that here without Absolutely. going anywhere yes because so many people come to us you mm -hmm. know it really, it's one of the top tourist destinations in the world. Um, so it's like you get you get all shapes and sizes and kinds here. So like that's that's pretty cool for for someone not having to make that investment and go out on all these road trips all the time. And it makes it that if you I if you are traveling and you get you are a little bit warmed up to performing in front of different audiences because you do see someone who's been performing in one city their whole lives and then when they travel and they deal with an audience that doesn't mesh with them exactly, then they just 
they spend like five shows just kind of bombing, getting used to that. And so it's nice that, yeah, you get that kind of road prep here. And you do, you travel a decent amount. You, mm-hmm. you're, Laura, in addition, you, you heard a little clip earlier. That was from uh, Laura's album. So she came into the New Orleans scene already as a, as a much more well-established uh, comedian than I think uh, than, than we had when when the when the the people who started our open mic they were very very like they'd been collectively I mean some of them had been doing it more than others but Molly for example had been doing stand she's an, she was an actress for a long time before that and done a lot of different sort of performances um, but as a stand up she'd only been doing it for a few months when she started mm-hmm. and so but you came into it you were you were already a touring comic and had an album that was at the time was the number one album on iTunes for comedy. Is that uh, so? <laughs> Just keep complimenting. Anyway, you're really good at this. But, but, but uh, being a being a touring comic, what's that like? Do you just crash on a lot of couches? Is it, is oh yeah, it's a like, lot. I I had a friend recently who tours with a lot of uh, filming stuff, and he's like, "Well, you must be sick of hotels by now." And I was like, "Ha!" <laughs> I was like, "Boy, I wish I could be sick of hotels." <laughs> Every time I get a hotel, I'm like gleeful, and it is. I mean, it's a lot of road. I think. I think in my choice to not move to one of the bigger comedy cities, um, that's kind of the default is that you just travel a lot then. And that's kind of the choice you make as far as exposing yourself to the rest of the world. And I love it too, because then you get to see the rest of the world and travel, but that is a lot of couch crashing, but it's kind of a, a nice currency in the comedy community that you're like, like I have someone coming in for hell. Yes. Fest who's going to crash at my place. Cause I crashed at his place when I was in Bloomington, Indiana. And so it's just <laughs> the kind of thing where it's, like a, you know, a couch crashing service you offer other people. And eventually, like right now, my goal is hotel sleeping all the time would be amazing. (laughs) That's the dream. That's the dream. You know, you made it. Yeah. But in the meantime, you get like all sorts of fun, weird stories. I toured with a friend and it just seemed like the theme of our whole tour was sick cats. Just everywhere we stayed had a sick cat in it. So you just kind of get those experiences that I think friends with day jobs and stable lives would just be like, that sounds like torture. And you're like, oh, you don't think that sounded fun? That's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually was a decent segue. You mentioned uh, Hell Yes Fest. Why don't we, Brock, talk about Hell Yes Fest. What's that? Um, so it is a comedy festival that I think this is our fifth year doing it. I always forget things. <laughs> um, and and we have and we're, we're doing it here in New Orleans uh, next week. Uh, that's uh, as as you hear this, that will be this week. Yeah. So that's Today. Wednesday, November fifteenth <laughs> through the nineteenth. Um, most of the shows take place in venues along St. Claude Avenue. Um, and we have one show at One Eye Jacks. Um. But yeah, and we've got comics coming in from all over America to do a variety of improv sketch and stand-up shows and game shows and all kinds of weird. There's a, a pizza eating competition show <laughs> we're going to do. Yeah. It's kind of an experimental comedy festival. What are there any are there any acts that the casual listener who's not in the comedy scene would recognize the name and be like, "Oh, that one. I know I know that person. I saw them on Conan or whatever." Um well, this year is actually different from, so we had a producing partner, um, that was working with us on the past two years and they were kind of pushing our festival to be more of a like headliner based, like how many big names can we put in, which is not what this festival started out as. It, it started out as us wanting to do something different because a lot of comedy festivals are just stand up or just improv. We wanted to have like something that was a, a big mix. 
Um, and so we've act, we're actually not working with them this year. So we weren't forced to have Sarah Silverman and, you know, all like Nick Swartzen and all those big expensive names. So probably a lot of you, we focused more on the format and shows as opposed to the names. Cause I don't even know. I don't, I don't think names even sell that much. Like they don't move that many tickets. If you've got a good show or you've, if you like, we're basically hoping that people will trust that we have curated good content, that the reputation of the festival would encourage people to come see shows, even if they haven't heard of them. I think that's the best way to try to promote comedy across the board. If you're always having to rely on names, that's, that's not as, um, I don't know. I, I I just don't think that that's how it should always be. So the, the the name that you're trying to sell is Hell Yes Fest. That's the the brand being enough of a of an identifier that people trust the brand. So even if they don't know who the performers are, it's like this is a brand that I know will generate some some lively, energetic, fun performances. Yeah, in the same way that you know you'll have fun coming to New Orleans, but you don't know that you'll have fun at Twelve Mile. You know, just go to New Orleans. People know. <laughs> I'm just saying. We're on, you know. we're on top 10 lists, sir. <laughs> you back that up right now. <laughs> Get him, Cole. <laughs> something I enjoy about, like, I, I feel when I have friends come out that see someone in, like, a smaller show or, like, someone who's not famous yet, then, like, a year or two later, they blow up and they got to be like, oh, my gosh, I got to see them. That's something I love about this city, too. Like, Tiffany Haddish, I got to see her headline, Bar Redux like a year ago that just literally Kamari was like, Hey, this woman's filming a movie in town. She's really, really funny. And now I'm just like, Oh, now she's everywhere. And I got to just like meet her in a dive bar setting. And that's, I feel like that's one of the perks of new Orleans as a comedy city is it's so close and accessible. And it's not that like big, shiny, far away stage. It's just like in it picked up a Monday and they had a visiting comedian who was doing, they were doing a bunch of Comedy Central filmings and yeah. I guess he was doing his warm up. I think his name is Shane Torres. Shane Torres is so funny and has come oh, here all yeah. the time. I was here that night. That was great. never heard of him before but then he did this Guy Fieri bit and then he did it on Late Night and it blew up. It went viral. Everybody was like, And you oh, got to see God. it at the bar here. It was, yeah. it was really funny. Person, the audience of like I had a people. great hipster moment there. I was like, yeah, I thought that oh. was funny before it went viral. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Shane? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I gave him a beer, I think. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm yeah. a pretty busy bartender. But yeah, oh, I, but I, it was spot on. His defensive guy, really Fieri, good. was really just like, yeah, he seems like he'd be a, re- he's nice, a genuine guy. He does a lot of good work and people <laughs> shit on him because he looks yeah. like the singer from Smash Mouth. And you saw it first at 12 <laughs> Mile Limit or anywhere else Shane uh, performed before <laughs> Does that, that happen <laughs> in other cities as well as, I mean, I, I feel that's like a unique, like New Orleans or a New Orleans style city, like where like comedians will go. Like Hamilton is his play. Yeah, has he's here all here the time. A couple times. Yeah, comes, <laughs> yeah he loves coming. <laughs> a 12 mile limit uh, yeah. for those who those who know you should come on monday because it's a great show and hannibal who burris knows? might show up he, uh, he, he's kind of but really he's been here like three times yeah. at least yeah so that was my first night working here <laughs> i was training <laughs> behind the bar <laughs> and i think that happens in other cities but i think new orleans again because it's a destination like that didn't happen in columbus ohio where i'm from mm-hmm. like comedically is like you have so many people coming here for the city that then you get to also catch them doing these like really intimate shows or people like coming for the festival 
if you had the same festival in a not destination city, it might be like, you'll be able to get more talent coming in because they're like, Oh, I want to check out that city and meet people and be in, performing in that city mm. versus, you know, I'm not going to name one city. Cause I know that one city is going to be like, we're actually great. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. First half of the show, we were trash talking but, Baton Rouge yeah, and vegetarians. Oh, yeah. So I mean, I we're burning bridges left and but, right. Like, if you're going to, you know, the Simpson Springfield of Ohio, then, <laughs> then you're not going to have comedians be like, Oh, I'd love to go perform there. So I, I do right. think we have that benefit here that isn't in other places. From my perspective, which is a completely outsider perspective as well, it feels like there's a casualness with like the consumerism as well, which I think is a bit of a, I don't know, a little bit of a negative, I feel. like It seems to me, and it might be a thing which is New Orleans has so much entertainment like in the city. It's like, you know, there's a lot of options on the table. There's bars to go to, restaurants, like plenty of nightlife that's available. Like the comedy scene doesn't seem like big portion of that nightlife which kind of blows my mind like because this this is a city that is just inherently like ripe with comedic value i mean like it's it's yeah. it's like just you know we we laugh at ourselves all the time i feel as new orleanians um but it just feels like in comparison to other places i've been to and seen comedy shows chicago was like a big one like i i'm from with a, friends with a bunch of uh comedians up in chicago uh when i would go to open mics up there or comedy clubs up there especially like just it seems like the audience is a little more keyed into like this is a comedy show and my mm-hmm. sometimes experiences here in new orleans it's like people just don't get it like and I, I don't know that's just my perspective you guys have any thoughts on that am i completely off base there oh you're not no okay cool. <laughs> <I don't- laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I mean, people don't really, yeah, it's like comedy is viewed in a different, I mean, I don't know, comedy, but the comedy, like, um, industry has changed, like, it became an industry in the 80s with comedy clubs. Mm -hmm. And there's never been one here. Mm -hmm. There's never been a full time comedy club. I mean, we are a full-time comedy theater, but it's different. And people still, I mean, we've been here for five years and people still don't get it. They don't get that you can come see comedy every night of the week at our theater. It just doesn't compute with the locals. I don't know why. And I, I do you think that's something I've always wondered, especially like moving here, being like, this is where I'm going to live and have it. Is it? an education of the audience's thing. Cause I do feel like you'll get a lot of times like a bar show that feels like a little bit like an ambush show. And yeah. then you have audience members misbehaving, but you're like at the same time, they didn't know they were going to be audience members tonight. And right. so they were just out partying. So I think, well, certainly it's like, Oh, the, the city needs to know more about the comedy scene. I think all the comedy scene can do is keep trying to grow and reach out to those people that don't know it's around and keep trying to deliver really amazing shows. Cause I love every, you know, every big show I do, you'll have a few people that are like, you know, I've never come out to comedy in new Orleans before. And now I'm really like going to like it a lot. Yeah. And so it's just, I feel like it's kind of with standups. There's always a thing where if your show doesn't go well, you blame the audience where it's like, you know, there's one common denominator in all of your shows not going well. (laughs) And so I feel like it's, it's just more of like an education thing. Like I've seen the scene grow just since I've been here since 2015. And I certainly, you're talking about like 2001 where it was like no mics anywhere or anything. So I think it is comedy is such a sliver of, of the entertainment options here. But I think that the, quality is good and now it's just like how do we get people right how do we get that feedback loop going of more people seeing it and do you think that there is room for a dedicated comedy club in new orleans do you think that space would is there an have we reached that critical mass where where there's enough 
content, there's enough of an audience that if there was a comedy club that people would go to that comedy club? I think it just really, there's so many variables in that, that like, yes, I would love to think that we could just start a, just like a, a typical, like on weekends, there's standup shows twice a night and all that thing. I would love it to grow towards that. I, I think there's just so many variables to consider going into that, that I don't want to be like, yes, definitely. Or no. Cause I think the city is so unique that it would not take the form of a, of the same kind of comedy club you see in like, you know, right. Easton mall in Columbus, Ohio. Also, <laughs> it's just, it's just scary too, because of the number of theaters that have closed in new Orleans as well. Like it just seems like all these theaters have closed. I mean, it's great that new movement is open, but I mean, you know, Southern rep closing down, like, you know, what was the one that was over in mid city? Uh, no, 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 no. That was a comedy. Well, yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. They, so we had a comedy theater yeah. and it is no more. Right. But it's just like, you know, there's, a lot of these dedicated spaces, I mean, it seems like there's more open mics, which is great, but the dedicated spaces have kind of disappeared. And like that's detrimental to theater and for comedy yeah. as well, which is so close together. Yeah, that's what's been hard for us is we've had a lot of theatrical actors come to us and either start taking classes or just wanting to be in sketch shows or whatever because we've we discovered there's not a home. There's no hub for the theatrical community. Yeah. And some people use us as kind of the de facto like theater hub. Um and I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't know. I mean, theater is hard to make money at anywhere. Like it, it I mean, go on Kickstarter and you'll see tons and tons of shows doing Kickstarters because yeah. no one wants to pay. Um, <laughs> but I, so I, I don't know what it would take to turn that around. And I completely mm-hmm. agree that there, I mean, a, I don't want, I would never want to make, a, I think that the old timey like comedy club, the two drink minimum thing is, stupid Mm -hmm. um and so i wouldn't want anything like that to exist here but i also don't think it could you're you're totally right that because of the uniqueness of the city and in the scene i think it would just be different it has to it's almost like it would have to be a variety um it it would have to have a variety of shows Um, or that i would love it if it was something that was more integrated like one of my favorite clubs in the whole world is go bananas comedy club in cincinnati ohio weird shout out specifically to that club right now (laughs) but it is something that it is there's the comedy club. Yeah. The generic, like two drink minimum, you picture like it's mostly there to make money. They're booking people that have had famous memes or have been YouTube stars or have been that aren't necessarily quality standups. And then like the go bananas model, they've been around since the boom in the eighties and they're small. It's be, and I think part of it, it, a testament to them is that they nurture their local scene. And so I think it is, if I would love to have a, a more structured standup club here, just in the sense that then you can on the regular get those big names in where now we're like Hannibal happened to stop by, or this person happened to stop by. I don't know. I would love it if it was a, Every weekend, we're ha- making sure that a national level person's coming in. But I think it is something where you need to make sure that it's not. You need business people to be in the mix because comedians don't know how to run their own lives a lot of the time, let alone a business. Right. And but at the same time, you need to focus on it being an asset to the community. So I really would love a stand up club in the city, but I would want it to be something that was done very intentionally with knowing how weird the city is in mind and it being set up to be a nurturing space for locals rather than, Oh, Hey, you know, like, you know, with all these people coming in and just like renting places, we can just make them spend their money on a hacky comic coming through. And so, (laughs) and so like that is on my wish list of while I'm here, I want that to be something, but I have no idea what shape it would be Hmm. at this point. All right. Well, we've talked to, we talked to Brock a lot about his side gigs outside of the the comedy scene. Uh, Laura, you, in addition 
to your your work as a stand-up, uh, you do some writing on the sides and contract work. One of those gigs is at the Whiskey Summer Camp, Camp Runamuck. Steve was a, an inaugural camper there. He's been he's volunteered with the organization for years. He's been a counselor and a head counselor and done a lot of stuff with them. He's on the alumni board now for Camp Runamuck. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I've, I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, Earlier in that process, but I've been I've been as a camper, I've been as a counselor, and I'm, I've applied to return in some capacity again in in the future. Laura, you just came on last year because they started doing a camp newspaper, mm-hmm. and I'm part of the press. Part of the press. <laughs> what? How was that experience? Like for whiskey summer camp for somebody who's not a bartender, how was that experience for you? And and. I was like, what? what it was weird. I, so I've been, I've been to two now. I went to the spring was my first one. I do. Um, I can't take credit for much of the writing. I do the layout and illustrations and some of the concept brainstorming for, uh, the Squirrel Tribune. And I, I was lucky enough that I knew it was going to be very weird going in. I think it actually living in New Orleans for a couple of years before doing that experience helped me just be like, it's going to be weird and there's going to be more booze than you ever could have guessed. Um, and I, Chris Manis, who Chris Manis and Josh Gandy are owners of the HR department, which is, they are the people that thought of doing the camp newsletter there. Um, I was very lucky that they prepped me very well and I'm old friends with them. And so it was nice to have someone kind of hold my hand because they'd been campers before and had been there. And so it was nice to, I had, just kind of a quiet night alone before everyone got in there to just be like, this is about to get strange. I do. It's very strange. <laughs> I do. I, I, I'm glad to hear that New Orleans prepares non bartenders well. Cause I, one of the things I joke about when people go to camp is like, Oh yeah, it's like nonstop drinking and like rampant, like overt sexuality. And it's just like intense and weird and fun. It's like, yeah, that's like New Orleans all the time. We yeah. send, <laughs> like as a city, we send a lot of bartenders up there. And I think it's just because we've never had any issues with anybody from New Orleans. We know how to handle our stuff when we get there. One of the things that run amok does though, is we're looking to bring as a diverse group of crowd uh, of bartenders together as possible. So it's like, Oh wow. You applied from Boise, Idaho or yeah. like, not to throw Boise under the bus, but you know, <laughs> it's we're a beautiful city. <laughs> I, I've heard lovely things, but let's just say their bar scene is not as big as other places. So, or let's just say you got somebody from some cowpoke someplace and they show up at this camp. It, it could be really overwhelming. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be like. It's like, oh, oh my God, everybody's naked and everybody's trying to put booze in my face right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that is like the thing that, well, and it's similar kind of in the, it has such an overlap with comedy. It was so interesting for me to meet like a whole other subset of people where I'm like, oh yeah, like the bar industry people are, they're the kind of their own group similar to how comedy people are their own group where so much of being part of entertainment and nightlife is learning to handle yourself in the middle of a very fun party and so i feel like that was something that comedy teaches you you have some people that have to quit comedy because that's the only way they can quit kind of like a negative party for their lives and there's people that can't handle their booze in a hey there's free liquor all the time situation and so i feel like there is such a balance in like you're in the industry of fun, but you need to make sure that you know how to tame the amount of fun you have so you're still functional. <laughs> That's- yeah. Oh, and New Orleans definitely prepares you for that. I talk about because uh, I don't I don't drink a ton anymore. I've exercised a lot of restraint, and I don't know if I ever would have learned that skill. And it is a skill if I didn't move to New Orleans, where restraint is 100% optional all the time. No one's ever going to tell you to. Cut yeah. To, I mean, p- your friends and family might be like, "We need to have a serious talk," but like the s- society won't tell you that you're you're doing it too hard yeah that you have to kind of learn yeah i feel like the city is very much like you can do anything but like you have to choose yourself then like you have to be your own boss as far as how you behave Mm -hmm. um 
Yeah. Uh, do we want to just like, yeah, let's wrap this, uh, let's wrap this whole thing up. Well, one, one of the things we like to do here on Around Stephen Cole is we, we like to do what we call parting shots. So if you want to, if you want to plug any upcoming shows, I hear there is a comedy fest this week that we might want to mention one more time and t- just tell people how to access that. Some of the highlights that we might have. Uh, Laura, if you're going to be pr- doing any, any, any book shows or if you want to talk any about any side projects you got going on, parting shots. So like, what, what's, so reintroduce yourself. What's your, your primary affiliation, your name, and, and just one thing you want to leave the audience with as, as we, uh, as we, as before we part ways here. Uh, Brock, you want to go first here? So this is Brock Laborde, producer of Hell Yes Fest, which starts today. If you're hearing my voice right now, it's happening right now. You've got to run to a computer, go to hellyesfest.com and get your tickets because they're probably already sold out and you need to really panic. Because, and you just go ahead and show up to the New Movement Theater and just start standing in line because it's just going to people are going to be fighting for the tickets. Um, but yeah, so go, go, we'll, we'll be doing 40 um, uh, something shows in five days. So that's November 15th through the 19th. Um, yeah, it'll be a fun time. It's going to be a fun party. Come check it out. Do you have a link to a website or anything anybody might be able to follow? He just hell, said hellyesfest.com. Well, it's okay. God. I'll say it again. Hellyesfest.com. This is a cool radio ad. <laughs> say it one more time for me. <laughs> what was that again? Um, okay. Uh, I'm Laura Sanders. And actually, November 15th today, this is Laura Sanders from the past plugging this right now. Um, I'll be recording a half an hour at the House of Blues. So if you want to come uh, throw your laughs at that, it's at 7 p.m. A wonderful kickoff to the rest of your Hell Yes Fest weekend. Very coordinated. What's um, this half hour? Not, I mean, you were you're talking it up. Where's it? Is it? Uh, where will we people people who won't be able to go in person? Where will they be able to see this half hour or hear this half um, hour? I'm I'm deciding all the things. I'm using it uh, to submit to some things. So it's going mm. to some higher up people that will sit alone in a room and watch it and judge me. <laughs> so come to the live show. That'll be more fun than that. And um and mostly it's it's also just a show. It has some of my favorite comics on the show. It's Kamari Stevens and Mary Devin Dupuis and Kate Mason and Leon Blanda hosting. Um so it's also just kind of a this is an amazing city with amazing comedy. I just want to have some great tapes of it. So that's also part of it. Um and then laurasanderscomedy.com if you want more details on that. Or me. Say that one more time. LauraSandersComedy.com. What was that website? LauraSandersComedy.com. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And for those who uh, didn't catch this enough, you can ca- you can find Laura almost every Monday night here hosting the Bear With Me open mic. Once every couple of months or so, you might see me do three to five minutes of comedy, and that's occasionally not painful. Uh, and so, yeah, come come on Mondays. We also have free food. Uh, at seven and eight, so it's delicious too. Chef Brandy kills Chef it. Brandy yeah, the food's really the free food is really good right now. It. And it turns out there's actually a pretty strong overlap in the constituency of people who are amateur comics and people who need a free meal. It's true. So <laughs> that that it's worked out really well. Service. Yeah, <laughs> Steve, uh, any any parting shots that we may have missed? Uh, no, that's pretty good. Uh, but I would say, um, kind of one of the points we touched on a little bit that I would like to reiterate: uh, support theater. Um, it's uh, a very good outlet for a lot of people who are trying to find themselves and express themselves creatively, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a, a play, whether it's stand-up comedy, improv comedy, and everything like that. Support these people. Go out there. You know, I think in New Orleans, we get into our routines a whole lot where it's like, I go to this bar, I go here, I go to that music venue. But try new things. If you haven't been to the New Movement Theater, you're missing out on a really great place. If you haven't been here to uh, Comedy Night, swing by. We've got free food. It's a it's a great time. You know, get out of your comfort zone a little bit and support these comedians who are working super hard and trying to contribute and build something here in the city of New Orleans. Yeah. 
That's a uh, that's great advice, Steve. Thanks. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> that's what I do. Anyways, <laughs> this has been another round with Stephen Cole. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Theme music for A Round with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for A Round with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie. I really want